All right, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. If you'll open your Bibles there, we're going to continue in, uh, in our study through 1 Peter. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been exploring the biblical mandate to live as pilgrims and sojourners in the world. Uh, and uh, Peter has been detailing three specific practices whereby we show Jesus to the world around us. And uh, what we've seen is that we display Jesus in how we approach submission, how we approach service, and how we approach suffering. And the last several weeks we've been looking at how we are ambassadors of Christ, how we are representatives of Christ in how we approach this area of, of submission, that we are to submit to the governing authorities in our lives, that we are to submit to those who are in, in positions of authority over us, our, our masters as it were. And so that would be our bosses or others that have authority over us. We've been looking at this area of submissions, how wives are to submit to their own husbands. We have looked last week about you husbands, how you have areas of submission in your own life, that God has made you to be the head of your wife as Christ is the head of the church, but that in assuming that position of responsibility, you have to be submitted to Christ and, and, and be the head as Jesus is the head of the church. And so we've been looking at all these areas of, of, of submission. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to explore this area of service as it pertains to our relationships. And here's the big idea of the message today. It's the idea of serving one another in unity and in love. How we are called to serve one another in unity and in love. And so we pick it up in verse 8 where we left off last week. Peter says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. You know, in April 1965, it was almost 50 years ago, uh, Jackie DeShannon recorded a song. It was a song that was written by Hal David and Burt Bacharach. And it would later be covered by Diane Warwick and used in the movie soundtracks for My Best Friend's Wedding and Forrest Gump. Uh, And it's a song that's entitled, What the World Needs Now. And many of you probably not familiar with the Jackie DeShannon version, but probably very familiar because of those movies I've mentioned with Diane Warwick's version. And and I just want to share with you the lyrics a little bit of this song, What the World Needs Now. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, not just for some, but for everyone. Lord, we don't need another mountain. There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb. There are oceans and rivers enough to cross, enough to last till the end of time. Lord, we don't need another meadow. There are cornfields and wheat fields enough to grow. There are sunbeams and moonbeams enough to shine. Oh, listen, Lord, if you want to know what the world needs now is love. And you know, like many of you last Friday, I was 
devastated to hear the news coming out of Connecticut. Brenda and I, we were on a plane on Friday. We got on a plane early Friday morning in Panama, and it's you know almost a seven-hour flight, and um, we arrived Friday afternoon, two-ish, have a long time through customs. And it wasn't until Brenda and I were in the car with my mom and dad and we're seeing the flags at half staff and, and you know, on our phones. And Brenda says, what, what happened in Connecticut? And my mom and dad shared the news with us. And like I'm sure most of you, we just devastated by what we heard. Just this, um, as we prayed today, just this evil personified. And actually, there, you know, as we're absorbing the news, and, and my wife just moved to tears over the news, and, and out of nowhere, the lyrics of this song just, just came to my mind. And I thought, yes, Lord, that's exactly what our world needs right now. Our world desperately needs love. And, and we need revival in our nation. And so the big idea in our text today as we come to it and we look at this, this mandate, this needfulness of serving one another in unity and in love, I would just beg you, in light of recent events and the shocking things that we're seeing in our society that are growing worse every day, and I just ask the question, how much worse can it get? And, 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 and it just causes you to cry out to say, Lord Jesus, we need revival. We, we, need, we need you to change the hearts of men and women. And, and really, truly, folks, the issue is love. Our world needs love. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And here's what his response, he said to him, the man who asked the question, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And he said, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And his answer sums up the entirety of the 10 commandments, those first four commandments having to do with our relationship with God and the last six having to do with our relationship with men. The first commandment, that you're going to have one God, you're going to worship him only. The second commandment, that you're not going to have any idols in your life. The third commandment, that that you're going to make sure that you're not taking the Lord's name in vain. The fourth commandment, that you're going to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Those first four commandments pertaining to your love relationship with God. The fifth commandment, starting those six, last six commandments that have to do with our relationship with man and how our fellow men, how do we love them, that we honor our father and our mother. The sixth commandment, that we don't murder. The seventh commandment, that we don't commit adultery. The eighth commandment, that we don't steal. The ninth commandment, that we don't lie. And the tenth commandment, that we don't covet. These last six commandments having to do with our relationship with our fellow men. And what Jesus says is that both these relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with man, they are so important to God that Jesus says that the entire Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, entirely summed up in those two commandments, love God and love others. And in fact, Jesus said that the defining behavioral trait of Christians would be our love 
for one another. He said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, our love for one another and our unity with one another was so important to the Lord that on the night he was betrayed, mere hours before he would go to the cross, Jesus prayed this. He said, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. And so what we see is that loving unity, that loving unity of, of us with our fellow man, of us with God, it's of paramount importance to God. And, and what we see in the last verse that we're going to cover today in verse 12 is that it's so important to God that if we will not love one another with the love that Christ commands us to love one another, that he himself will set his face against us. He will oppose us if we don't love as God has commanded. So what Peter says here in our text is that loving unity requires two things. He says, if I can sum it up, he says it requires a right attitude and he says that it requires a right response. And if you're given to note-taking, I would just have you write those two things down. Loving unity requires two things, a right attitude and a right response. Now, in the area of a right attitude, Peter mentions five things that have to do with us having a right attitude. And it's so important, because here's the deal. Loving one another is just plain hard, isn't it? And here's why. Because we are sinful people. And, and the issue is, let's just be honest, sometimes you don't even like yourself. Sometimes you don't want to even, let, you're miserable just being you, with you. And it's hard enough to be miserable with you and, and, and just be you and being miserable with you. Then you add somebody else into the equation, it just gets harder and harder. It's miserably hard. And the battle starts in your mind. That's the idea. And so the issue is, if we're going to love one another, and we just acknowledge up front, it's hard, okay? And so now, how do we love one another in the way that Jesus has commanded? Because it's not about emotion. It's not about, you know, I've got these feelings of love. If you live your life by emotions, you're going to have a train wreck life right? It's a choice. It's a decision. It's an action. And in order for that to be able to take, to, 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 to get any sort of traction in our lives, we have to first conquer this thing in our minds. We have to have the right mindset. And the right mindset then is going to have a, help us to have the right actions. So Peter's going to talk about five particular things that have to do with maintaining the right attitude. And the first thing that he says there in verse 8 as he says, finally, all of you be of one mind. That phrase, one mind, literally it means to think the same thing. Here's what Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul had to say about this idea. He said in Romans chapter 15, he said, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant to you to be like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ. Now that's the important part, according to Christ Jesus. That you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, here's the deal. Being of one mind, it doesn't mean that you, you, that you lose your individuality or, or that you can't be yourself. 
Being of one mind doesn't mean that we all have to just, you know, morph into, you know, one particular version. That's why a lot of people don't like Christianity because they think that, you know, it has to, we all have to like be these carbon copies of one another. That's not the idea at all. It simply means, get this, that you're in tune to the same thing. Means that you're in tune to the same thing. Brenda and I we're driving recently, and she on her iPod has recently downloaded uh, just a, a lot of the bands from the '80s. That's our generation. I'm sorry, the '80s just has the best music ever, right? And and so she she's downloaded the she downloaded the best of the Police, right? And we're driving in our car. We've got her, 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 her phone, her iPhone plugged in to the stereo, and I've got it cranked, and I'm listening to the police. Now, you know, the, the band, the police, they only got three people in their band, right? You've got Stuart Copeland, who's on the drums, who's, who's brilliant. You've got Andy Summers, who's on lead guitar. And you've got Sting, who does the lead vocals, and he also plays the bass. Pretty good at it, actually. And you listen to these three guys, and you're like, that is this, this cool music, right? And they're all doing their own thing. They're all singing their different parts. They're all playing their different parts. But the issue is they're all playing the same tune. It would be a train wreck if they were all individually doing their own thing and they were all doing their own songs. That's not what they do. They're all singing the same song. And what Peter says here, that we have to have the same mind, it means we all do our individual things individually. You all have a part to play, but we're all supposed to have the same mind. We're all supposed to be in tune with Jesus, be be doing the same song as Jesus. And so Jesus, his song is, well, he modeled compassion, he modeled a life of love, he modeled tenderheartedness, and he modeled forgiveness. And so the natural result, if we're going to be in harmony with the Lord Jesus and model his actions, well, then we're going to be compassionate. We're going to be loving. We're going to be tenderhearted. We're going to be forgiving. Now, I don't know your musical abilities. Mine, you, you, can't, you can fit in a thimble, right? I can't carry a tune in a bucket. Now, my wife, she's got a lot of musical abilities, and she'll sing harmony, which I'm very envious of because I wish I could. But I'm told, I wouldn't know, I can't sing harmony, but I'm told to sing harmony, you have to have a really good ear to hear the melody. And that if you can't hear the melody, your harmony just it is butchered. Lonnie, am I right? I wouldn't know. Is that, is that it fairly right? He's, he's giving me a kind of half-hearted maybe. Okay, so I don't know. But I'm told that that's the way it is. And this idea, it's a matter of being in tune. You've got to be in tune. You've got to be able to hear you know, the melody. You got to be able to hear the song in order to adequately be able to sing the harmony to it. So the issue is we need to be in harmony with Jesus. Romans 12, 2 says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, let me give you the obvious implication of that verse. It's that you can't have the mind of Christ if you don't know his word right? You can't have the mind of Christ if you don't know his word. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the word, that he became flesh, and that he dwelt among us. And so if you want to know the mind of Christ, you want to have the mind of Christ, you have to know Jesus. You just got to know him. You know, as a dad, I would go, you know, places, I would leave notes for my kids. You know, and the the purpose of the note was so that they would know my mind, that they would know my heart. See, because the Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And and so what we have to understand 
is that Bible study is so important because we need to know the heart and the mind of God. My kids, they would come home from school. They've got a heart and a mind for what they're going to do when they get home. I'm going to watch some TV. I'm going to play some video games. Then I, I think I'll go, you know, take a nap or I think I'll go outside and play with my friends or whatever it is. That was what was in their mind. And they were sinners, right? Because what was in the, what was in the heart and mind of their father was that they should come home and do their homework and clean up after them, themselves. You weren't born in a barn, shut the door, clean the dishes. Your mom's coming home to make you dinner. And, you know, you're not King Farouk. You're not, you're not you, you, you have some chores that you have to do. You have to have the house prepared so that your mom doesn't walk into a pigsty, you know? And, and so there are things that I would impart to them to say, here is my heart and my mind. And I want you to be in tune with that. And so this is Peter saying, listen, you have to be of one mind. You got to be in tune with what God wants you to do. You see, we've got these two natures within us that are in opposition to one another. Paul told the Galatians that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So you don't do the things that you wish to do. Just like my kids. They, they, the conflict is, I don't want to clean. I want to sit around. Yet yeah, my heart and my mind is that you clean. And so Peter says, listen, we need to be of one mind. And this is the first right attitude that Paul talks about. Now he moves on from there to the second attitude. And the second attitude that he focuses on is that we need to have compassion for one another. Have compassion. That word compassion, if you're given to taking notes, you could circle it nearby. You could write the word sympathy because that's literally what he's talking about. In other words, if we're going to obey God and truly love one another in unity, we have to sympathize with others. Now, do you know the biggest obstacle to you actually sympathizing with somebody else? Selfishness. You, you're the biggest obstacle. See, because what happens is you have to have an others-oriented focus in order to sympathize with someone and oftentimes we're focused on us and ourselves. And so because we're focused on us, because we're selfish by nature, it's really difficult sometimes to sympathize with others. Turn real quickly to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're kind of going to be jumping around here. I'm in Matthew chapter 6. That's why it doesn't look familiar. All right. So in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7, Jesus calls the 12 to himself, the 12 disciples, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits. Jesus is training his disciples for when he's going to go away. So he's sending them out. He wants them to start cutting their teeth on, hey, this is how you go out, you know, as a pastor and minister the gospel to people. And so he sends them out two by two. Uh, You skip to verse 12, and so, so they went out, and they preached that people should repent, a great thing for pastors to start. Good, good starting point. You need to repent. You're sinners. The gospel says all of sin falls short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. You need to repent, right? So this is what they do. 
And, and obviously, they're following it up with the good news. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, right? So they went out, they preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, if you are going to go out as an ambassador of Christ, and you're going to minister to people properly, it is exhausting. Because people will suck you dry. That's what they do. But that's what God's called us to do when we're going to sympathize with other people. You have to be focused on them. And a proper focusing on the needs of others means you give all that you've got and it's exhausting. And so this is what happened with them. Verse 30, we skip ahead to, then the apostles gathered to Jesus. They told him all the things, both that they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, verse 31, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Why? For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And he says, Jesus, to these guys, great job. You know that good kind of tired? You guys know it? When you've worked really hard, and you've got a job well done, and you go home, and you just, that is the sweetest rest that comes after that, isn't it? Because there's no guilt attached to it. So many times when we rest and you're thinking in the back of your mind, I got stuff I should be doing. So you can't really rest, right? But when you've just come off of doing something and you're resting, that's the sweetest kind of rest in the world. When I, on Sunday afternoon, when I get to like sit on my couch and watch a football game after, after Sunday, you know, morning, services, it's the sweetest kind of rest in the world. I look forward to that, right? And so these guys are looking forward to this rest that Jesus promised them. And this idea of they didn't even have time to eat, that's going to factor very prominently here in a second. Keep that in the back of your brain. Verse 32, so they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves, but the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities, and they arrived before them, and they came together to him. You're like, wait a minute, they went on a boat. How did the people run there? Well, they're cutting a corner of a lake from one edge to another, and the people on the shore said, oh, I know where they're going, and they ran around, and so they're what about Bob? They get to the other side, Dr. Leo Marvin, you know, and the disciples are like, oh my gosh, where did, don't you people have homes to go to, right? And so you can just see the disciples when they're, they're like, oh, it's you again, right? But notice Jesus's response. And Jesus, when he came out, verse 34, what did he see? He saw a great multitude and he was moved with, what's the word? Compassion. See, Jesus wasn't focused on, I'm getting a rest, and now I'm going to get something to eat. He was focused on other people to the point to where he sacrificed himself. And I'm firmly convinced he was setting the disciples up here. Oh, come away for a place and rest, you know. And no, and he's just setting them up to to be crestfallen. Like, where did you guys come from? Don't you have Holmes kind of attitude? Because he wants to show them, look, the Son of Man came not to be served, but serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Stop looking at yourself. Stop focusing on your empty stomach. Pour out. Have some compassion on people. And so he had compassion on them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. Verse 35, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and they said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Verse 36, send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Now connect the dots. Verse 36, they need to go get themselves something to eat. They don't have anything to eat. 
back up to the end of verse 31. There were, Jesus is promising them a rest because there were many coming and going, and they, the disciples, did not even have time to eat. So what do you got? You've got the disciples who are thinking, I'm hungry. I, don't, I haven't had time to rest. I haven't had time to eat. We're going over here. We've all got our sack lunches. We're all going to get something to eat. And all of a sudden, oh, there they are, and we're ministering to them. They've already stolen my rest, and I notice none of them have a lunch. Nobody's got a lunch pail. And now they've stolen my rest, and now they're going to steal my food too. You see, the disciples are totally focused on themselves and on their own appetites, right? And so what does Jesus say? Jesus answered them, verse 37, he said to them, you give them something to eat. Now hold that thought. I'll put it on the screen for you for time's sake so we can get right to the point. Philippians 3. Here's what Paul says to the Philippians. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. There he says, hey, you gotta be like mine. You gotta have the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. They don't have something to eat, Lord. Send me to get something to eat because I want to keep what's for me. Their God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. See, here's what I've discovered about having compassion for other people. If I'm living focused on myself and on my own appetites, my compassion for others is diminished. So I'm in Panama. We passed out shoes, right? And, and so here we are, Mario, we better get going. It's raining. And Brenda and I quickly agreeing, let's get out of here. The local's nervous. I'm scared because he's nervous, and I don't want to get stuck here. And I'm thinking, you know, as we're going up this grade in this four-cylinder bogging down car, muddy road, this don't mix. And now I'm going to have my wife who thinks roughing it is room service at the Hilton. And I'm going to have her in the rainforest in the middle of the night. And they're telling us about the jaguars or the, you know, the panthers that are out there and everything. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to get stuck here. So Dan points out the grade here. It's coming and he's getting some momentum. And we start going up the hill and out come these two kids from the jungle. They heard about the shoes. They need a pair of shoes. And Mario from the back of the car says, stop. And your pastor in his heart, I didn't let it come out of my mouth. But in my heart, I said, forget the kids, keep going. I don't want to get stuck on this road. Throw the shoes out the window, fend for yourself. Everybody, run for your lives, right? I don't know why you guys come here. I don't even know why you come back. But that's honestly what's going on in my heart. I'm like, forget the kids. We're going to get stuck in the jungle. So what do we do? We had compassion on them. We stopped. And wouldn't you know it, this, this, these sweet little kids, this sweet little girl, we had these brand new pair of shoes that, didn't, that hadn't fit anybody at the, at the school. They fit her perfectly. And she had a smile from ear to ear. She was so elated. And you know, here's the thing. God had those shoes just for her before we ever got on a plane, you know? And the issue is, man, it, we, we need to have these hearts of compassion, this sympathy for other people. 
that looks beyond our own self-centeredness. And I just ask you the question, do you have compassion for others? It's a great barometer of whether you have the mind of Christ. Peter, he gives a a, a third right attitude as he continues. And and he says, the third right attitude to have is that you would love as brothers. And here's the idea. The idea being that you treat one another like family. Now, here's the best way that I can describe this. I'll I'll use a contrast to describe it. We'll put 1 Timothy 5, 1 on the screen for you. Here's what Paul tells Timothy. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers. And so the, the, the instruction there is, look, don't rebuke older men, and by implication, don't rebuke younger men. His point, don't rebuke family. You need to exhort them as a father and exhort the younger men as brothers. Now that word rebuke, this is the only place it's used in the New Testament and here's what it literally means. It means literally to strike at, take a swing at, to put, to hit physically. Now some of you, you come from unhealthy families and that's the norm. But the thing is, is that if you come from a healthy family, then you will understand, look, I, I, I'm not, my brother and I can get in a fight But if somebody else jumps in, my brother and I are against him, right? The attitude is we're family. We are family. Blood is thicker than water. And this is this this idea. But you know what what Peter is saying when, when he talks about loving as brothers, he's saying, man, it's not that you strike. It's not that you hit. It's not that you're going to... No, you need to have this thing in your heart, in your relating to other people. And the, the idea is we need to love others, right? With this love of Christ. And so what we need to do to do that in terms of loving his brothers, you need to do everything you can to lift that person up and you need to do everything you can to honor that person above yourself. Romans 12.10 says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. Now, yesterday we had uh, a couple of brothers from the church uh, who had occasion to extend some brotherly love. We've had one of our Marines, Ron Brownlow, who's been out of the country. He's been uh, in Japan. And uh, while Ron's been gone, these men have been loving uh, on, you know, his, on, on Ron by taking care of his family you know, bringing Christmas tree over to his house and so on. Well, Ron came in yesterday and uh, these guys, they went to go get him at the airport, right? And, uh, you know, here's the thing. Jesus said, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And here are these men, in order to go get their brother at the airport, they, they had to lay their life down just to extend that brotherly love. Listen, we're gonna go, we're gonna pick him up. They had this special surprise for him at, uh, at the Build-A-Bear place where these kids didn't know he was coming. And so they had to, you know, hurry up and set this stuff up and get Ron hidden away in the back room there and had his kids come out. And Ron, they said, we've got a special bear in the back for you. And see, his friends helped pull that together. By the way, Ron, welcome home, man. Glad you're here, buddy. Love his brothers. And the thing is, is that, listen... It's hard sometimes to love in that way. And Peter's about to talk about, man, when people revile you and they treat you evilly and, and, and all. And, and man, we, we have the occasion in so many times to become self-centered or to become antagonistic. But the, the command is just a very simple, basic, man, love one another as brothers, right? 
this is how we're to relate to one another. The fourth right attitude that Peter mentions is to be tender-hearted, right? You see it there, be tender-hearted. Now, the root of this word is splachna. If you wanted to circle tender-hearted and nearby, here's what splachna means. Literally, it means your guts or your bowels, right? To be tender-hearted, guts or bowels, here's the idea. The idea is that this goes beyond sympathy. What it means is that we feel what others feel right? This takes sympathy to a whole new level when you want to love somebody in a meaningful way. What it means is that you feel what they feel. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is what we are called to do. See, this is where a lot of people, they'll tap out because this crosses that intimate line in, in their relationships. It's like, you know what? Uh, rejoicing with somebody who rejoices, I can do that. Weep with someone who weeps, man, that's, that, uh, they close themselves off. They protect themselves. Why? Because feeling what somebody feels, being tenderhearted in that way, it takes a toll on you, right? This last week, just turning on the news, you can't help but feel tenderheartedly and you feel it in your gut. It hurts because you ache so badly for what people are going through. And, and what Peter is saying is that we as Christians, to be an ambassador of Christ, what's required for us is that we, we, we go there. We, we love one another enough to be tenderhearted, to be in that place where I'm going to go there emotionally with you and I'm going to feel what you feel. Now, what I've noticed is that this comes out a lot in funerals, right? And there's typically a couple of different types of people that go to funerals. The one type is the person that's not willing to go there emotionally, right? And then the other type is the person who absolutely goes there emotionally with the person, right? And, and so the person that won't go there emotionally, what happens is you'll see them, they sort of throw out their little pithy Christian platitudes at a funeral. It's like, you know, they mumble something like, well, you know, he's in a better place. Uh, you know, oh, the big guy needed help up there. And he just, you know, he just went, he called for the best, you know, and, and just something, you know, pithy, something, some platitude like, oh, you know, he's in a better place, you know, there's an angel. You have an angel in heaven watching over you now, right? And the thing is, is that those things sound good, but they don't do diddly squat to minister to the person. They're hollow. They're empty. And, 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 and you know, the, so often the people that just sort of throw those things out, you go, well, they just didn't know what else to say. Yeah, but what happens is, and, and that might be true, but what I see is that they'll throw the thing out because they, they just have to say something, and then they're out, man. And they're, they, they're not around for any sort of meaningful follow-through. They're not bringing food to the person. They're not, hey, can I, can I help with your kids? Hey, here's, here's, here's an idea. How better just to cry with someone? You know, Jesus did it. Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. He wept over Lazarus. And the thing is, is that we're called to weep with those who weep. And so if we are going to be tender-hearted with one another, sometimes it requires, I'm going to go to that vulnerable place, and I'm going to hurt with you. 
And again, it requires that, that element of, I'm just going to sacrifice out of the sake that you're hurting and I'm going to hurt with you. Just to be tenderhearted. And the fifth and right attitude that Peter mentions is to be courteous. To be courteous. Literally, what this means is to be lowly-minded, right? Here's what the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians. He said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. This is the God of the universe who the Bible says all things hold together, are held together by Jesus Christ. He holds everything together. The molecules in your body are held together by the Lord. Imagine that as that man nailing Jesus to the cross, as he's physically crucifying Jesus, his capacity to live, to take his next breath, to have the molecules in his body held together by the very one that he's nailing to the cross. And what Paul tells these Philippians is Jesus came in the likeness of man and being found in in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is our Lord and Savior. Every single one of these attributes, by the way, manifested by Jesus Christ. You want to know how to live your life in love of one another? Just look at Jesus. He is love. God is love. And so we're called to be courteous. There's a thought. You know, common courtesy is so long gone. Like if you, wanted, if you ever doubted that, take a plane trip. People on an airplane are the rudest people on the face of the earth. It blows me away. You know, that guy, it's crazy. You go to get up, right? You know the guy? In what air, airplane etiquette, airplane courtesy is everyone waits. Next row, they stand up, they go out, because you've got to get your luggage out of the thing, and then you move forward, right? Sit down and wait your turn. And there's always that guy in the back who, you know, everybody else didn't get the memo that he's more important than everybody else on the plane. And you go to stand up, and the guy straight arms you to walk by. I physically had a guy straight arm me on a, on a jet blue flight to get past me. I, and here's the cool part. I was three seats from the back of the plane. You ever flown JetBlue? They had two exits, one up front and one in the back. And, and Mr. Courtesy didn't get that memo. And so he straight arms me to get by. I'm like, well, thank you very much. I think I'll take my bag and go off the plane right now, you know? But, that, you know, common courtesy is long gone. Now, here's the key, okay? When we talk about being courteous, being lowly-minded, here's the key. It's how you see yourself, and it's how you see others. This is critical. How you see yourself, and how you see others. See, in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 9, I won't tell you there, but we'll just shorthand, the disciples, they're on their way to Capernaum, and they're having an argument on the road. And so they get to Capernaum, and Jesus says, hey, what was the fight about? And they're all like, nothing, right? Why? Well, the text tells us they're arguing about who's the greatest, they're totally busted. Jesus is like, hey, so what are you talking about? Nothing. Can't remember. I don't know. 
Not sure. So what's Jesus do? Well, he takes a little child, and he, and he takes this child, and he, and he sits him down on his lap. And here's what he says to the disciples. He says, listen, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. In other words, here's the message he was conveying to these guys who they saw themselves, they didn't see others. They wanted everybody to get the memo, I'm more important than you. And Jesus said, listen, you need to see others as God's children and you need to serve them in that way. And this is what Peter is saying to us. In this idea of being courteous, it's a matter of seeing other people the way God sees them. And I'll just simply say this, it is not all about you. It's just not. And if, if the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, then it's good enough for you. And it's good enough for me. And God will test us on this, right? This is just this basic ass, attitude of, of, of being courteous. And, and it manifests itself in a thousand ways. For me, it manifests myself, itself in my driving. You know, I'll go to a Christian you know, conference, and I'm going out of the parking lot. Oh, God bless you. Go ahead. Oh, God bless you. Go ahead. You know, my wife called me on this. She's like, yeah, wait till we're a block down the road. Then it's like, no, you're not getting in here, buddy. You know, <laughs> didn't I just see you at the Christian con? Oh, I didn't recognize. Yes, go right on it. No, we're called to be courteous. I told you, I don't know why you guys come here. It's crazy. <laughs> we need to see other people the way God sees them. This is what's crucial if we're going to love one another and the world desperately needs it. Because I'm firmly convinced the problems that we've got in this world are all because we're God and we've made ourselves to be God. And if we would just humble ourselves and let him be God and worship him as God, well, then God would be honored. He'd be glorified and there'd be a whole lot more love in the world. So this idea of seeing others as God sees them, of being courteous, of being lowly-minded. This brings us to the second requirement for loving unity that Peter touches on, and and, uh, that is to have a right response. Not only is it important that we have a right attitude and all of those steps to have a right attitude, but we have to have a right response too. See, because here's what what Peter says back in 1 Peter. He says says this in verse 9, not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. See, John MacArthur said this. He said, a godly approach to life incorporates not only the right action motivated by the right attitude, but he says it also produces the proper reaction when mistreated. So not only do we have to have the right action motivated by the right attitude, we have to have the right reaction when we're mistreated. And the question is, and I would just, this is your take-home question, how do you react when you're mistreated? How do you react when someone mistreats you? Because Peter says we're, we're, we're supposed to return a blessing. That word blessing, if you want to circle it nearby, you could write the word eulogy. That's literally what it means. And of course, a eulogy means to praise or to speak well of others. And so what Peter now does here in in the last couple of verses is he quotes from Psalm 34. And, And what he does is he suggests several practical applications for how you and I can have the right response 
when we are sinned against. Again, the natural response, the way that seems right to a man, which is the way of death, is that when you wrong me, I'm going to wrong you back, right? When Elliot Ness is talking to Officer Jimmy Malone in The Untouchables, and Jimmy Malone says, here's how you handle it. They put one of yours in the hospital, you put two of theirs in the morgue. And every man in here says, yes, that's right. I love it. And our flesh always does. But that's not what we're called to do. So Peter, he quotes from Psalm 34, and he says, look, here's how you respond. And so the first thing he says, and you can write this down, is bless them by what you don't say. Okay, when you're wronged, how do you bless others? First way, bless them by what you don't say. Verse 10, Peter says, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Here's what Isaiah said in this regard of holding your tongue. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He, that is Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Second thing I'd have you write down when, when, when you're oppressed and, and all, second thing you do, you bless others by returning good for their evil. Peter says this in verse 11. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And, and, and so not only do you bless them by what you don't say when somebody speaks evil against you or when somebody persecutes you, but you also bless others by returning good for their evil. Now, Jesus said this in, in Matthew chapter 5, and, and I'll just give you the address. It's Matthew five thirty-eight and following. You don't have to turn there for time's sake. But he said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. He says, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too right? He goes on, he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And you go, I, how do you do that? Because when somebody wrongs you and you want to kill them, how do you bless them and not kill them for what they've done to you? Well, Peter, or Jesus, he adds on to this. Here's how he concludes this whole train of thought. I'll just skip ahead a few verses in verse 48. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you're like, okay, I'm out. You just wasted 40 minutes of my time, Pastor Ted, because I ain't perfect. So, you know, I'm out. Now, here's the deal. You can't white-knuckle your way through this. That's the point. We're called to love. These are the standard that we're called to love too. And your only hope on God's green earth of loving people like this is by the Spirit of God. That's it. 
You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and in Acts chapter 1, we read about the role of the Holy Spirit and what he does in the life of believers in many places elsewhere. And what we read there, what we come to find out, is Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The word power there in Acts chapter 1, it's dunamos. We get the word dynamite from that. It's this dynamite power that you will have if you will just simply, honestly, profoundly say, God, I understand that I'm called to love others. I understand that's the standard, and I understand that that's what this world desperately needs. And if I, as an individual Christian, and as every Christian in America, if we started living this out, the tragedies that we see manifesting themselves on an increasing scale that trend would be reversed because the world needs love and you're the vehicle that God wants to deliver that love through. You have the, 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 the God of heaven, Jesus Christ, lives in your heart and you're called to be the hands and feet and the mouth of Christ. So this is the mandate, this is the call and that's the vehicle through which it's going to come. One final thought and we're done. Peter says this in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's this simple. The book of James says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And you've got one of two choices. You can hear all this, and you can say, I understand all that, and I'm not going to do it. And I would say you've just signed up for a life of pain and for a life of agony and for a life of disappointment because God says he sets his face against that prideful attitude and against that prideful heart. And so if you want to have God resist you, then you don't love others the way that we've just studied. But if you'll humble yourself, my friends, and you just simply say, God, I understand the standard help. God, help me. He will. 